You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. This morning we're beginning a new sermon series called Turning Tables in the Gospel of Luke. And I suppose what I'm really trying to address myself to is the question, what is the church? Another way of asking that question is, what in the world are we doing here today? Why are we, you might be asking yourself that question, why am I here in church today? Well, there are a lot of answers that a lot of different people have to that question, and I don't think it's true of any of us here today, but sometimes we get it wrong. I want to read to you a little parable of a moth who got it wrong. Uh, Not only church, but life in general. This is from uh, Parables of a Country Parson. It's a collection of uh, these little stories written by William E. Barton, who was a 19th century biographer of Abraham Lincoln and pastor. And here's what he says uh, in the story called The Moth in the Church Carpet. There was a moth that had his home in the sanctuary, and he lived long and was happy, for the place of his habitation was between two tacks, in the edge of the carpet, in an obscure little angle where the stair ascendeth unto the pulpit. And it would have been difficult to select a finer place of abode for a moth of sedentary habits, and he never, never wandered from his own fireside, but whitened the corner where he was. That is to say, he wandered not until the time when this chapter in his history beginneth, and this chapter is not a long one, and there will not be any chapters after this. For that moth is there no longer, and the place that knew him knoweth him no more. Now this moth was serenely happy, for the carpet was fuzzy, and it was the very best food a moth could desire, and the brushes of the janitor came not nigh him. And the moth listened unto the organ, and he thought the music was for his edification, and he heard the sermons and the prayers, and so far as he knew, they were addressed to him. And he lifted up his eyes, and behold, there were yards and yards of carpet, stretching down long aisles through the length of the nave. And he looked unto the right hand and the left, and there was carpet under the uttermost borders of the transepts, and the lines had fallen unto him in pleasant places, and he had a goodly heritage. But he waxed fat and grew conceited. And he said, Go to now, I will explore mine heritage. For behold, all this is mine, and for me it hath been created. And he crept out of his corner and started on a journey down the center aisle. And when he had gotten out about an inch and the half of an inch, behold, the janitor came along with a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) And just what happened unto the moth, he hath not yet clearly defined in his own mind. For he was sucked up with a strong wind and pulled down on hollow rod and blown down a rubber tube that led into an iron pipe into a vat in the basement and buried deep in dust. And while he meditated, the janitor came and opened the vat and thrust in a shovel and scooped up the dust and shoveled it into the blazing fiery furnace. And the moth was in the dust when this occurred. And the history of that moth from that time on containeth nothing of importance. But there seldom hath been a moth whose future prospects were more encouraging than that one, if he had not gotten a swelled head and thought he was the boss of the whole establishment. Now the person who thinketh that the universe was made for his own convenience would better stay in his own little corner of it, 
For if he get it out, getteth out where important things occur, something is likely to happen either unto him or his theory. <laughs> what is the church? All kinds of answers, like a building, like a program, like a mission agency. But those who read the New Testament must say to all of that, absolutely not. Luke himself gives us perhaps the clearest perspective on what the church is. Luke, the historian, he writes the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. You read this story and you come to the middle of it and you see even the opponents of the followers of Jesus say this of them. These are the people who have turned the world upside down. Look at the impact of the church. It's a movement. It's a community of people alive with the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. And how does it happen? Roll back the tape earlier and you come to a table. A table that is gathered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God Himself. In Acts 2.42, we read on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit descends, there's something that happens and it, it is a gravitational pull to the table. The followers of Jesus, we read, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They broke bread house by house across Jerusalem, and day by day the Lord added to their number some movement. And the generative core of this movement is an experience of the table. Well, how did that happen exactly? Roll back the tape even more, and we find out that before the book of Acts, there's another volume. Volume 1 by the same author, Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke wants to show us how it is that Jesus prepares the community that bursts forth on Pentecost. We see Jesus in the Gospel of Luke assembling the team around the table. Luke is preoccupied with meals and Jesus there. Jesus keeps pulling the most unlikely people into the circle of fellowship. He's assembling his team. And then he's not only assembling his team, but he's equipping it. He's giving it conviction. So that when the spirit comes, they will know how to respond in the presence of the living God. Well, we're going to look at these table encounters with Jesus in answer to the question, what is the church and why are we here? And how do we get involved with the thing that is really the church? We're going to discover three core convictions at the table. Convictions that grow out of the ministry of Jesus Christ. In a sense, then, we're returning back to basics. With Vince Lombardi, we're saying, this is a football. It's halftime. This is the church. What are our core convictions? You may remember we've been asking this question over the last several months. Last spring, we surveyed the church. The elders have been praying with you and seeking discernment. And we've come up with an answer to the question. There are three convictions that UPC has always stood for. There are three convictions that resonate deeply with me upon which I want to plant my banner. And these are they. First of all, spiritual formation. Second of all, life-changing community. And finally, lay leadership. We're going to see all of those in our text this morning. So I would invite you to open up uh, to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, which you'll find on page 837. Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32. This is the first table incident, the calling of Levi. Would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. And when you're done reading, 
I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, we're reading God's holy word. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. The revolution of the church begins with this revolving of expectations at a table. And the first one is around spiritual formation. It's a new conviction that Jesus brings. And this is the conviction. Jesus changes lives. We resist this, but Jesus changes lives. He's impressing that from the very beginning as he calls this uh, first table disciple uh, Levi. Jesus says, follow me. And then we read with stunning brevity, Luke records, and he got up, left everything and followed him. Wow. Now, there's no question but that Levi's life needed changing. We don't know a lot about Levi. We get our two data points in his name and in his profession, which Luke gives us here. We learn, by the way, from other sources that this is also Matthew. He's got two names, not uncommon, first century Judaism. But his name is Levi. His primary name is Levi. That's the one that Luke wants us to understand. Perhaps his name is representative of a benediction his parents had hoped his life would represent. You see, the name of Levi is a very special name in the Old Testament. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He was the father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. His tribe was marked out as the priestly line. The book of Leviticus gives us the legislation for the priestly duty. It's all about the holiness of God, what it means to live your life to be a community in the presence of the holiness of God is represented in the temple. And it's interesting that the Levites, as one of the tribes, was the only tribe not given land in Canaan. God had said, you won't need land because you're working in the temple and you will live off the tithes of a generous people. Ironic, isn't it? That Levi seems to have fallen a far distance from that ambition. For here he is living, not off the tithes of Israel, but off its taxes. No, though he may have been raised at his mother's knee, learning the Torah and enfolded in his parents' prayers, though he may have owned that ambition for himself, a life well lived before the living God, he has fallen so very far. And his occupation makes that clear. He's a tax collector. He sits at a toll booth on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in a city called Capernaum. He's well located. 
He's on a very lucrative trade route between Mesopotamia, Pas uh, um, Palestine, and Egypt. And there he sits. To the Jews around him, he's a traitor. He, he, he's a sympathizer. He does what he does with a Roman sword at his side. The Romans, who are occupiers, who represent the foreigners who had desecrated the temple that Levi was supposed to have cherished. A tax collector was seen as a, a robber, a burglar, an extortioner, a hated person, certainly a sinner. Maybe this is not the place that Levi thought he would end up, and yet here he is. I don't know how I got here, but I got to find myself stuck in a place out of which I do not know how to get. And then here comes Jesus. Jesus, we are told, sees the tax collector named Levi. He saw him. It's a stronger word than that, really, in the Greek. He beheld him. He looked at him. He gazed at him. Perhaps he stared through him. And when the reader reads this, he's thinking, uh-oh, Jesus is scared of the tax collector. He, he wants to move away from him so that uh, he doesn't fall prey to his scam. Or, or maybe you think, ah, good, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to finally get this guy. He's going to sizzle him right here, right? He's locking eyes on him. But most shockingly, our Savior walks right up to Levi. And what does he say? Not you brood of vipers. He says, follow me. You, Levi, follow me. He says, I came for this purpose at the end of the text. This is most remarkable. Everyone would have expected that the Messiah would come to call. And when he came to call, surely he would call the righteous into their reward. But Jesus says at the end of this passage, no, I've not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners. Levi, I have come to call you. Follow me. Jesus changes the life of Levi. Changes the life that needs changing. It's so remarkable how brief this little counter is. I, I, it, it's mind-spinning. Jesus just walks up and he says, follow me. And Luke says he got up and left everything and followed him. Is that not a life transformed? You can hardly believe it. It may be the case that Levi was a disciple of John the Baptist. We do find John the Baptist preaching to tax collectors. It may be the case that Levi has met Jesus before, as we find Peter has on the shore of the Dead Sea in the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember, Andrew introduces Peter to Jesus, and yet Peter will be called formally as a disciple later on. And we see that just a couple chapters prior in his fishing boat where Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fisher of men. Maybe Levi has some knowledge of who Jesus is. It may also be that this statement is really kind of like a headline that describes a lifelong process that Luke, looking back from the vantage point of many years, says, you know, you look at Levi's life and really he did get up and leave everything and follow Jesus. His life really was, in the end, changed. It may have been a process, but make no mistake about it, Jesus changes his life. 
He doesn't just offer him forgiveness. He doesn't just offer him the hope of eternity. He says, right now, those patterns of living that you don't know what to do with, I know what to do with. Follow me. Uh, what about repentance, you say? Uh, you know, shouldn't Jesus have come up to him and said, repent? Well, repentance is discussed in this passage, but Jesus doesn't need to talk to Levi about it. He's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes about it. He's just explaining to them what repentance looks like. What it looks like is a living, vital relationship with a person, Jesus. That's what it looks like. Jesus doesn't say, follow my code, follow my advice, follow my teaching, follow my philosophical constructs. Do you follow me? Are you tracking? He says, you follow me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The brevity of the description emphasizes the total reorientation of life. Yes, repentance is involved, but in, in the writings of Luke, and you can write this down if you like, Acts 5.31, Acts 11.18, repentance is always a gift. Not a precondition. It's a gift that God gives to those who follow Jesus. It's not a requirement that you have to achieve before you can be in relationship with God. No, he leads with, would you know that you belong to me? Fill in your name. Wherever you sit today, can you hear Jesus calling you? You follow me. I need to hear that myself. This week I sat at my desk as I oftentimes do, my mind wanders and I think I'm distracted by anxiety or worry or shame or disappointment. And I think, no, I've got to do better than that. I've got to rise to the lifestyle to which Jesus calls me. And I, I think, try harder. And I need to hear Luke reminding me, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your focus needs to be just on Jesus, on relationship with him. God's saying, let me lead you. So we've been reminded at University Presbyterian Church by our pastor, Bruce Larson, that truth is a person. We've been re reminded by our pastor, Earl Palmer, who reminds us that Jesus is the living center of all of history and of our lives. And he will win our loyalty as we get to know him, as we journey with him. This is what spiritual formation is all about, relationship with Jesus. The, the core mandate of the church is to be and make disciples. And we do that in relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus uses other words in John 15 when he says, You abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear fruit. Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Galatia, here's the, the summary, the whole letter of the Galatians. You can get the whole letter right here. And Paul says, hey, don't let anybody, when you're stuck, try to throw you back upon some moral code, the law, or anything else. He says, you keep focus on how you came to life. It was through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you continue. Faith in Jesus Christ. He says, here's the language of spiritual formation. He says, I am in the labor of childbirth until Christ is formed inside of you. Jesus, forming Himself in your life, transforming you through relationship with him. It happens because of the Holy Spirit. So Paul in Galatians says, keep in step with the Spirit. 
And all the fruit, the character quality of Jesus will become yours as you journey with him. Spiritual formation, Jesus changes lives. Secondly, the second conviction is life-changing community. And here's the conviction. Jesus changes lives through community. This story is told in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the so-called synoptic Gospels, because they see similarly, synoptic seeing similarly. And in all three Gospels, there is a pairing of this two-verse call scene, 27 and 28, with a meal scene, verses that follow. And it's because Jesus wants us to understand that those who follow him will also sit with his followers in community. And he understands that, for me as an introvert, and some of you as well, that that is a challenge. And we just would rather say, Jesus, I'm okay with you, but can you take care of your followers? Because I don't really want to be, I don't, I, don't, I don't really need to be a part of that. And I realize as soon as I say that, I am agreeing, not with Jesus, not with Levi, but with the Pharisees and the scribes in the story. That's their fundamental position. The Pharisees and the scribes look at this meal. They see Jesus, and they don't have any beef with Jesus. He's a rabbi. Okay, that's all right. In this story, the way that Luke tells it, he shows the Pharisees and the scribes addressing not Jesus, Actually, in Matthew and Mark, he does complain against Jesus. But here, the emphasis is on community. Remember, Luke is the theologian of the church. He shows the Pharisees and the scribes objecting to the disciples. They, they say, why do you, disciples, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you do it? Why don't you just follow Jesus? Keep your hands pure. Keep your heart untainted. You and Jesus. That's the Pharisees' idea. And it's interesting. They don't have to answer. Jesus steps in and gives the answer for them. I think that's so like our Savior. Anytime any of his followers come under attack, Jesus steps right in to defend and to give the answer. And Jesus answers because the answer is Jesus's, not theirs. He knows they haven't all done this because they want to spend time together because they're looking for another social club because these seem like cool people to hang out with. No one wants to be at this table. Nobody does. Maybe Levi, maybe Jesus, nobody else. Jesus gives the answer. He, he says to them what he says to them in the upper room, his early disciples, his, his whole team, on the night of his betrayal, he says, you know what? He looks around this motley crew and he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I chose you for myself and I chose you for each other. I am the one who puts you together in this circle. It's my work, not yours. So when we follow Jesus, we will be seated by him with a group of his friends. And here's why. Listen to the answer that Jesus gives. Verse uh, 31. He says to the Pharisees and their scribes, you know, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I've come to heal, he's saying. And this is the way that I do it. I do it through community. 
I pull people together in relationship with one another. And I set myself at the center of that relationship. I show myself to each one and to the group as they gather. I show up at their table. That's how they meet me. That's how they know I, the physician, am healing them. That's how their lives change. And this is really the way it has to be. When you think theologically, just take two doctrines. Take the, the doctrine of God and, and the Trinity. The Bible teaches us, though it never uses the word Trinity, that God is three. And we see this from the very beginning of the book of Genesis. God is also life. He's the source of life. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity are enjoying life. Notice it's a circle of friends. It's three persons. And if to heal someone is to give them life, then to be healed is to receive life from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if that God could only hold on to life in community, how is it that I think I can hold on to it as an individual? The thing doesn't work that way. I experience life in community. I am healed, therefore, in community. The other doctrine, think about the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus is the word made flesh to dwell among us. That's his preference, to be embodied among us. That's how he reveals himself to creation, to all humanity. And so that has implications for who we are as well. And the Apostle Paul picks it up. He saw the risen Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor of community, but then he enters into it after meeting Jesus face to face. What a change in his life. And Paul would write the Colossians, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus has a body. And then he stretches the meaning of the word body from just a physical one unit person, Jesus is, to a community. Colossians 1.18, Jesus now is the head of the body, which is the church. Jesus makes himself known, Paul is saying, in a continuing way. His presence becomes tangible to us through a corporate body. That's how we grow. Jesus doesn't have a school. He has a body. It's a community. Jesus changes lives. He changes lives through community. And our final conviction here at UPC and growing out of this text is lay leadership. Jesus changes lives through community that is led by every one of its ministers. You are a minister. You are a priest, Peter would say. Well, that's sort of scary. <laughs> I'm not sure I like that, you say. But there's joy in it. It's a gift of God. Look at how Levi responds. There is not a heartbeat between verse 28 and 29. He followed him, then 29, then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. Luke makes special notice that this is Levi's party. I know our translation helps us out when we're reading Matthew and Mark and fills in the blank and tells us that this is Levi's party. But in the, in the original Greek, it's only in Luke that we find out this is Levi's house, it's Levi's food, it's Levi's celebration. He cannot contain himself. Can you believe who has called me to follow him? Can you believe who is in my life? He goes out along the highways and the byways and he collects all of his business association, associates, friends and enemies. And he says, come, you got you to come to this party. It's going to be great. Jesus will be there. He's using his gifts in ministry right there. 
There's no ordination ceremony. There's no training class. This is the beginning of the disciples' training. It's not been a single lesson. But he knows something about Jesus that immediately implicates him in the movement. And he just rushes into it. Almost instinctively. We find out later it's a response to the Spirit who pushes him into it. Do you ever wonder how it is that Luke tells us Levi left everything and followed Jesus? And yet, just a verse later, tells us, then he had everybody over to his house for a huge banquet. I mean, you go, wait a minute. What kind of banquet is this? Maybe it changes our understanding of what it means to leave everything. It's not as though, uh, apparently, Levi really divested himself of, of, of everything. He's, he's no longer got a house. He's no longer got clothes. He's no longer got money in his pocket. Apparently, he has that. He's got money for the food. He does still have this house. But here's the thing. Levi has transferred title of it all to Jesus. That, by the way, is what stewardship is all about. Stewardship is not an event. By the way, if you look at our bulletin, you see uh, some end-of-year numbers which are uh, woefully inadequate to, to communicate how well and how generously you all gave at the end of the year. I actually think we're going to make our budget uh, mid-year, but I won't tell you that yet, so just wait a couple of years. We, it takes a while to process those end-of-the-year gifts. But don't be confused by that. As we celebrate that, let's remember, stewardship is not an event. It's a lifestyle. And here we see a man named Levi offering everything he has unto the lordship of Jesus Christ. His money for the food, his house for the party. I mean, I don't think I'd want this crowd in my house. And he goes, I don't care, it's Jesus. It's bring them all in. You know, I'm sure he didn't have any chandeliers, any, any uh, vases left. The time that it took, his relationships, his reputation... All of this is coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's using it to build community. Those are his gifts. And he's using them for Jesus, the text tells us. And for mission. Uh, he's building community out of those who do not know Jesus and have the same need that he has for a changed life. Well, Peter would get it. He was there and he would write to a bunch of Christians later on in his life, You are a royal priesthood. You're all priests. Nobody's more special than you. Nobody has greater capacity than you, wherever God has put you for kingdom impact. And Paul would say, you know, the body of which Jesus is the head only grows as every member exercises its function. We'll be hamstrung until you use your gifts at UPC. I love what uh, one of our members said years ago, apparently at a conference in Texas. He had a name tag that said University of Presbyterian Church. And someone said, oh, are you on the staff at uh, UPC? And he said, no, I'm one of its ministers. And that he, caught, he had caught the spirit of this place, that every one of us is a minister. Well, this is the church. These are the convictions of the growing community around Jesus Christ, that Jesus changes lives through community formed out of the leadership of every one of its members. And, I, and, I, and if you have not found a way of connecting with that, we want to help you. This Lent, we're going to do again what we did last Lent. It's so exciting to watch you all do this. Uh, forming small groups, almost 400 small groups formed across the city, the greater Seattle area. We're going to do it again this year. And then after Easter, we're going to burst out into our neighborhoods with some special service projects. But I, I'll tell you more about that later. 
Would you be willing to open up your small group to someone else? Would you be willing to lead a small group and use your gifts in that way? Would you be willing to share your home with a group that doesn't have a place to meet? Would you be willing to take the risk to be in a small group, perhaps for the first time in your life, or maybe after too many bad tries? Would you try again? I'm going to close with the words of J.B. Phillips, who translated the New Testament under the title Letters to Young Churches in 1947. The great difference between present-day Christianity and that of which we read in these letters is that to us it is primarily a performance. To them it was a real experience. We are apt to reduce the Christian religion to a code, or at best a rule of heart and life. But to these people, it is quite plainly the invasion of their lives by a new quality of life altogether. They do not hesitate to describe this as Christ living in them. Mere moral reformation will hardly explain the transformation and the exuberant vitality of these people's lives, even if we could prove a motive for such reformation. And certainly the world around offered little encouragement to the early Christian. We are practically driven to accept their own explanation, which is that their little human lives had, through Christ, been linked up with the very life of God. And so are ours. So are ours. Let's pray. So you've called our name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've added our name among those three that we might be a people who live in your presence, in your power, in your peace. You have called us to be disciples. You have called us to make disciples. You have sent us into the world. And you remind us that wherever we go and whatever we face, the key to our lives is simply this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In that we take great comfort. And we invite you to transform us as a community in mission, the same way that you have year by year over a hundred-year history, the same way that you did the early church. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.